Part 3, Chapter 3 of The Man of Property. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Foresight Saga, The Man of Property by John Galsworthy. Part 3, Chapter 3, Meeting at the Botanical. Young Jolyon, whose circumstances were not those of a foresight, found at times a difficulty in sparing the money needful for those country jaunts and researches into nature, without having prosecuted which no watercolor artist ever puts brush to paper. He was frequently, in fact obliged, to take his color box into the botanical gardens, and there on his stool, in the shade of a monkey puzzler or in the lee of some India rubber plant, he would spend long hours sketching. An art critic, who had recently been looking at his work, had delivered himself as follows. In a way, your drawings are very good. Tone and color, and some of them certainly quite a feeling for nature. But you see, they're so scattered, you'll never get the public to look at them. Now, if you'd taken a definite subject, such as London by Night, or the Crystal Palace in the Spring, and made a regular series, the public would have known at once what they were looking at. I can't lay too much stress upon that. All the men who are making great names in art, like Crumb Stone or Bleeder, are making them by avoiding the unexpected, by specializing and putting their works all in the same pigeonhole, so that the public know Pat wants where to go. And this stands to reason, for if a man's a collector, he doesn't want people to smell at the canvas to find out whom his pictures are by. He wants them to be able to say at once, a capital foresight. It is all the more important for you to be careful to choose a subject that they can lay hold of on the spot, since there's no very marked originality in your style. Young Jolyon, standing by the little piano, where a bowl of dried rose leaves, the only produce of the garden, was deposited on a bit of faded damask, listened with his dim smile. Turning to his wife, who was looking at the speaker with an angry expression on her thin face, he said, You see, dear? I do not, she answered in her staccato voice that still had a little foreign accent. Your style has originality. The critic looked at her, smiled deferentially, and said no more. Like everyone else, he knew their history. The words bore good fruit with young Jolyon. They were contrary to all that he believed in, to all that he theoretically held good in his art. But some strange, deep instinct moved him against his will to turn them to profit. He discovered, therefore, one morning that an idea had come to him for making a series of watercolor drawings of London. How the idea had arisen he could not tell. And it was not till the following year, when he had completed and sold them at a very fair price, that in one of his impersonal moods he found himself able to recollect the art critic, and to discover in his own achievement another proof that he was a foresight. He decided to commence with the botanical gardens, where he had already made so many studies, and chose the little artificial pond, sprinkled now with an autumn shower of red and yellow leaves, for though the gardeners longed to sweep them off, they could not reach them with their brooms. The rest of the gardens they swept bare enough, removing every morning nature's rain of leaves, piling them in heaps, whence from slow fires rose the sweet, acrid smoke that, like the cuckoo's note for spring, the scent of lime trees for the summer, is the true emblem of the fall. 
The gardener's tidy soles could not abide the gold and green and russet pattern on the grass. The gravel paths must lie unstained, ordered, methodical, without knowledge of the realities of life, nor of that slow and beautiful decay which flings crowns underfoot to star the earth with fallen glories, whence, as the cycle rolls, will leap again wild spring. Thus each leaf that fell was marked from the moment when it fluttered a good-bye and dropped, slow turning from its twig. But on that little pond the leaves floated in peace and praised heaven with their hues, the sunlight haunting over them. And so young Jolyon found them. Coming there one morning in the middle of October, he was disconcerted to find a bench about twenty paces from his stand occupied, for he had a proper horror of anyone seeing him at work. A lady in a velvet jacket was sitting there with her eyes fixed on the ground. A flowering laurel, however, stood between, and taking shelter behind this, young Jolyon prepared his easel. His preparations were leisurely. He caught, as every true artist should, at anything that might delay for a moment the effort of his work, and he found himself looking furtively at this unknown dame. Like his father before him, he had an eye for a face. This face was charming. He saw a rounded chin nestling in a cream ruffle, a delicate face with large dark eyes and soft lips. A black picture hat concealed her hair. Her figure was lightly poised against the back of the bench. Her knees were crossed. The tip of a patent leather shoe emerged beneath her skirt. There was something, indeed, inexpressibly dainty about the person of this lady, but young Jolyon's attention was chiefly riveted by the look on her face, which reminded him of his wife. It was as though its owner had come into contact with forces too strong for her. It troubled him, arousing vague feelings of attraction and chivalry. Who was she? And what doing there alone? Two young gentlemen of that peculiar breed, at once forward and shy, found in the Regent's Park, came by on their way to lawn tennis, and he noted with disapproval their furtive stares of admiration. A loitering gardener halted to do something unnecessary to a clump of pampas grass, he, too, wanted an excuse for peeping. A gentleman, old and by his hat, a professor of horticulture, passed three times to scrutinize her long and stealthily, a queer expression about his lips. With all these men, young Jolyon felt the same vague irritation. She looked at none of them, yet was he certain that every man who passed would look at her like that. Her face was not the face of a sorceress, who in every look holds out to men the offer of pleasure, it had none of the devil's beauty so highly prized among the first foresights of the land. Neither was it of that type, no less adorable, associated with the box of chocolate. It was not of the spiritually passionate or passionately spiritual order, peculiar to house decoration and modern poetry, nor did it seem to promise to the playwright material for the production of the interesting and neurasthenic figure who commits suicide in the last act. In shape and coloring, in its soft, persuasive passivity, its sensuous purity, this woman's face reminded him of Titian's heavenly love, a reproduction of which hung over the sideboard in his dining room. And her attraction seemed to be in this soft passivity, and the feeling she gave that to pressure she must yield. For what or whom was she waiting, in the silence, with the trees dropping here and there a leaf, and the thrushes strutting close on grass, touched with the sparkle of the autumn rhyme? Then her charming face grew eager, and, glancing round, with almost a lover's jealousy, young Jolyon saw Bassini striding across the grass. 
Curiously, he watched the meeting, the look in their eyes, the long clasp of their hands. They sat down close together, linked for all their outward discretion. He heard the rapid murmur of their talk, but what they said he could not catch. He had rowed in the galley himself. He knew the long hours of waiting and the lean minutes of a half-public meeting, the tortures of suspense that haunt the unhallowed lover. It required, however, but a glance at their two faces to see that this was none of those affairs of a season that distract men and women about town, none of those sudden appetites that wake up ravening and are surfeited and asleep again in six weeks. This was the real thing. This was what had happened to himself. Out of this anything might come. Bassini was pleading, and she so quiet, so soft, yet immovable in her passivity, sat looking over the grass. Was he the man to carry her off, that tender, passive being, who would never stir a step for herself? Who had given him all herself and would die for him, but perhaps would never run away with him? It seemed to young Jolyon that he could hear her saying, But darling, it would ruin you. For he himself had experienced to the full the gnawing fear at the bottom of each woman's heart that she is a drag on the man she loves. And he peeped at them no more but their soft, rapid talk came to his ears with the stuttering song of some bird who seemed trying to remember the notes of spring. Joy? Tragedy? Which? Which? And gradually their talk ceased. Long silence followed. And where does Soames come in, young Jolyon thought? People think she is concerned about the sin of deceiving her husband. Little they know of women. She's eating, after starvation, taking her revenge and heaven help her, for he'll take his. He heard the swish of silk, and spying round the laurel, saw them walking away, their hands stealthily joined. At the end of July, old Jolyon had taken his granddaughter to the mountains, and on that visit, the last they ever paid, June recovered to a great extent her health and spirits. In the hotels, filled with British foresights, for old Jolyon could not bear a set of Germans, as he called all foreigners, she was looked upon with respect, the only granddaughter of that fine-looking and evidently wealthy old Mr. Forsythe. She did not mix freely with people. To mix freely with people was not June's habit. But she formed some friendships, and notably one in the Rhone Valley, with a French girl who was dying of consumption. Determining at once that her friend should not die, she forgot, in the institution of a campaign against death, much of her own trouble. Old Jolyon watched the new intimacy with relief and disapproval, for this additional proof that her life was to be passed amongst lame ducks worried him. Would she never make a friendship or take an interest in something that would be of real benefit to her? Taking up with a parcel of foreigners, he called it. He often, however, brought home grapes or roses and presented them to Mamselle with an ingratiating twinkle. Towards the end of September, in spite of June's disapproval, Mademoiselle Vigor breathed her last in the little hotel at St. Luc to which they had moved her, and June took her defeat so deeply to heart that old Jolyon carried her away to Paris. Here, in contemplation of the Venus de Milo and the Madeleine, she shook off her depression, and when, towards the middle of October, they returned to town, her grandfather believed that he had effected a cure. No sooner, however, had they established themselves in Stanhope Gate and he perceived to his dismay a return of her old absorbed and brooding manner. She would sit, staring in front of her, her chin on her hand, like a little Norse spirit, 
grim and intent, while all around in the electric light, then just installed, shone the great drawing-room brocaded up to the frieze, full of furniture from Maple and Pulbreds. And in the huge gilt mirror were reflected those Dresden china groups of young men in tight knee breeches, at the feet of full-bosom ladies nursing on their laps pet lambs, which old Jolyon had bought when he was a bachelor and thought so highly of in these days of degenerate taste. He was a man of most open mind, who, more than any foresight of them all, had moved with the times. But he could never forget that he had bought these groups at Jobson's and given a lot of money for them. He often said to June, with a sort of disillusioned contempt, "'You don't care about them. They're not the gimcrack things you and your friends like. But they cost me seventy pounds.' He was not a man who allowed his taste to be warped when he knew for solid reasons that it was sound. One of the first things that June did on getting home was to go round to Timothy's. She persuaded herself that it was her duty to call there and cheer him with an account of all her travels. But in reality she went because she knew of no other place where, by some random speech or roundabout question, she could glean news of Bassini. They received her most cordially. And how was her dear grandfather? He had not been to see them since May. Her Uncle Timothy was very poorly. He had had a lot of trouble with a chimney sweep in his bedroom. The stupid man had let the soot down the chimney. It had quite upset her uncle. June sat there a long time, dreading, yet passionately hoping that they would speak of Bassini. But paralyzed by unaccountable discretion, Mrs. Septimus Small let fall no word. Neither did she question June about him. In desperation, the girl asked at last whether Soames and Irene were in town. She had not yet been to see anyone. It was Aunt Hester who replied, Oh, yes, they were in town. They had not been away at all. There was some little difficulty about the house, she believed. June had heard, no doubt. She had better ask her Aunt Julie. June turned to Mrs. Small, who sat upright in her chair, her hands clasped, her face covered with innumerable pouts. In answer to the girl's look, she maintained a strange silence, and when she spoke it was to ask June whether she had worn night socks up in those high hotels, where it must be so cold of a night. June answered that she had not, she hated the stuffy things, and rose to leave. Mrs. Small's infallibly chosen silence was far more ominous to her than anything that could have been said. Before half an hour was over, she had dragged the truth from Mrs. Baines in Lowndes Square, that Soames was bringing an action against Bassini over the decoration of the house. Instead of disturbing her, the news had a strangely calming effect, as though she saw in the prospect of this struggle new hope for herself. She learned that the case was expected to come on in about a month, and there seemed little or no prospect of Bassini's success. "'And whatever he'll do, I can't think,' said Mrs. Baines. "'It's very dreadful for him, you know. He's got no money. He's very hard up and we can't help him, I'm sure. I'm told the money-lenders won't lend you if you have no security, and he has none, none at all. Her embon point had increased of late. She was in the full swing of autumn organization, her writing-table literally strewn with the menus of charity functions. She looked meaningly at June, with her round eyes of parrot gray. The sudden flush that rose on the girl's intent young face, she must have seen spring up before her a great hope, the sudden sweetness of her smile, often came back to Lady Baines in after years. Baines was knighted when he built that public museum of art which has given so much employment to officials and so little pleasure to those working classes for whom it was designed. 
The memory of that change, vivid and touching, like the breaking open of a flower or the first sun after long winter, the memory, too, of all that came after, often intruded itself, unaccountably, inopportunely, on Lady Baines, when her mind was set upon the most important things. This was the very afternoon of the day that young Jolyon witnessed the meeting in the botanical gardens, and on this day, too, old Jolyon paid a visit to his solicitors, Forsyte, Bastard, and Forsyte, in the poultry. Soames was not in, he had gone down to Somerset House. Bastard was buried up to the Hilton papers in that inaccessible apartment where he was judiciously placed, in order that he might do as much work as possible. But James was in the front office, biting a finger, and lugubriously turning over the pleadings in Forsyte versus Bassini. This sound lawyer had only a sort of luxurious dread of the nice point, enough to set up a pleasurable feeling of fuss, for his good practical sense told him that if he himself were on the bench he would not pay much attention to it. But he was afraid that this Bassini would go bankrupt, and Soames would have to find the money after all, and costs into the bargain. And behind this tangible dread there was always that intangible trouble, lurking in the background, intricate, dim, scandalous, like a bad dream, and of which this action was but an outward and visible sign. He raised his head as old Jolyon came in and muttered, "'How are you, Jolyon? Haven't seen you for an age. You've been to Switzerland, they tell me. This young Bassini, he's got himself into a mess. I knew how it would be.' He held out the papers regarding his elder brother with nervous gloom. Old Jolyon read them in silence, and while he read them, James looked at the floor, biting his fingers the while. Old Jolyon pitched them down at last, and they fell with a thump against a mass of affidavits in Rebuncombe Deceased, one of the many branches of that parent and profitable tree, Friar versus Forsyte. "'I don't know what Soames is about,' he said, to make a fuss over a few hundred pounds. I thought he was a man of property.' James' long upper lip twitched angrily. He could not bear his son to be attacked in such a spot. "'It's not the money,' he began, but meeting his brother's glance, direct, shrewd, judicial, he stopped. There was a silence. "'I've come in for my will,' said old Jolyon at last, tugging at his moustache. James' curiosity was roused at once. Perhaps nothing in this life was more stimulating to him than a will. It was a supreme deal with property.' the final inventory of a man's belongings, the last word on what he was worth. He sounded the bell. "'Bring in Mr. Jolyon's will,' he said to an anxious, dark-haired clerk. "'You going to make some alterations?' And through his mind there flashed the thought, "'Now am I worth as much as he?' Old Jolyon put the will in his breast pocket, and James twisted his long legs regretfully. "'You've made some nice purchases lately, they tell me,' he said." "'I don't know where you get your information from,' answered old Jolyon sharply. "'When's this action coming on? Next month? "'I can't tell what you've got in your minds. "'You must manage your own affairs, but if you take my advice, "'you'll settle it out of court. Good-bye.' "'With a cold handshake, he was gone. "'James, his fixed grey-blue eye corkscrewing round some secret anxious image, "'began again to bite his finger.' Old Jolyon took his will to the offices of the new colliery company, and sat down in the empty boardroom to read it through. He answered, down by the starn hemmings, so tartly when the latter, seeing his chairman seated there, entered with the new superintendent's first report, that the secretary withdrew with regretful dignity, and sending for the transfer clerk, blew him up till the poor youth knew not where to look. 
It was not by George, as he, down by the starn, would have him know, for a whippersnapper of a young fellow like him, to come down to that office and think that he was God Almighty. He, down by the starn, had been head of that office for more years than a boy like him could count, and if he thought that when he had finished all his work he could sit there doing nothing, he did not know him, Hemmings, down by the starn, and so forth. On the other side of the green baize door, old Jolyon sat at the long mahogany and leather board table, his thick, loose-jointed tortoise-shell eyeglasses perched on the bridge of his nose, his gold pencil moving down the clauses of his will. It was a simple affair, for there were none of those vexatious little legacies and donations to charities which fritter away a man's possessions and damage the majestic effect of that little paragraph in the morning papers according to Forsytes who die with a hundred thousand pounds. A simple affair, just a bequest to his son of twenty thousand, and as to the residue of my property of whatsoever kind, whether realty or personality, or partaking of the nature of either, upon trust to pay the proceeds, rents, annual produce, dividends, or interest thereof and thereon, to my said granddaughter June Forsythe, or her assigns during her life, to be for her sole use and benefit, and without, etc., and from and after her death or decease upon trust to convey, assign, transfer, or make over the said last-mentioned lands, hereditaments, premises, trust, monies, stocks, funds, investments, and securities, or such as shall then stand for and represent the same unto such person or persons, whether one or more, for such intents, purposes, and uses, and generally in such manner, way, and form, in all respects, as the said June Foresight, notwithstanding, coverture shall by her last will and testament, or any writing or writings in the nature of a will, testament, or testamentary disposition, to be by her duly made, signed, and published, direct, appoint, or make over, give and dispose of the same, and in default, etc., provided always, and so on, in seven folios of brief and simple phraseology. The will had been drawn by James in his palmy days. He had foreseen almost every contingency. Old Jolyon sat a long time reading this will. At last he took half a sheet of paper from the rack and made a prolonged pencil note. Then buttoning up the will, he caused a cab to be called and drove to the offices of Paramer and Herring in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Jack Herring was dead, but his nephew was still in the firm and old Jolyon was closeted with him for half an hour. He had kept the hansom, and on coming out, gave the driver the address, 3 Wistaria Avenue. He felt a strange, slow satisfaction, as though he had scored a victory over James and the man of property. They should not poke their noses into his affairs any more. He had just cancelled their trusteeships of his will. He would take the whole of his business out of their hands, and put it into the hands of young Herring, and he would move the business of his companies, too. If that young Soames were such a man of property— he would never miss a thousand a year or so. And under his great white moustache, old Jolyon grimly smiled. He felt that what he was doing was in the nature of retributive justice, richly deserved. Slowly, surely, with the secret inner process that works the destruction of an old tree, the poison of the wounds to his happiness, his will, his pride, had corroded the comely edifice of his philosophy. Life had worn him down on one side, till, like that family of which he was the head, he had lost balance. To him, borne northwards towards his son's house, the thought of the new disposition of property, which he had just set in motion, appeared vaguely in the light of a stroke of punishment, 
leveled at that family and that society of which James and his son seemed to him the representatives. He had made a restitution to young Jolyon, and restitution to young Jolyon satisfied his secret craving for revenge, revenge against time, sorrow, and interference, against all that incalculable sum of disapproval that had been bestowed by the world for fifteen years on his only son. It presented itself as the one possible way of asserting once more the domination of his will, of forcing James and Soames and the family and all those hidden masses of Forsytes, a great stream rolling against the single dam of his obstinacy, to recognize once and for all that he would be master. It was sweet to think that at last he was going to make the boy a richer man by far than that son of James, that man of property. And it was sweet to give to Joe, for he loved his son. Neither young Jolyon nor his wife were in. Young Jolyon, indeed, was not back from the botanical, but the little maid told him that she expected the master at any moment. "'He's always at home to tea, sir, to play with the children.' Old Jolyon said he would wait and sat down patiently enough in the faded, shabby drawing-room, where, now that the summer chintzes were removed, the old chairs and sofas revealed all their threadbare deficiencies. He longed to send for the children, to have them there beside him, their supple bodies against his knees, to hear Jolly's Hello, Gran, and see his rush, and feel Holly's soft little hand sealing up against his cheek. But he would not. There was solemnity in what he had come to do, and until it was over he would not play. He amused himself by thinking how with two strokes of his pen he was going to restore the look of caste so conspicuously absent from everything in that little house. How he could fill these rooms or others in some larger mansion with triumphs of art from Bapel and Bullprids. How he could send little Jolly to Harrow in Oxford. He no longer had faith in Eton and Cambridge, for his son had been there. How he could procure little Holly the best musical instruction. The child had a remarkable aptitude. As these visions crowded before him, causing emotion to swell his heart, he rose and stood at the window, looking down into the little walled strip of garden where the pear tree, bare of leaves before its time, stood with gaunt branches in the slow-gathering mist of the autumn afternoon. The dog Balthazar, his tail curled tightly over a piebald, furry back, was walking at the farther end, sniffing at the plants, and in intervals placing his leg for support against the wall. And old Jolyon mused. What pleasure was there left but to give? It was pleasant to give when you could find one who would be thankful for what you gave, one of your own flesh and blood. There was no satisfaction to be had out of giving to those who did not belong to you, to those who had no claim on you. Such giving as that was a betrayal of the individualistic convictions and actions of his life, of all his enterprise, his labor, and his moderation, of the great and proud fact that, like tens of thousands of foresights before him, tens of thousands in the present, tens of thousands in the future, he had always made his own and held his own in the world. And while he stood there looking down on the smut-covered foliage of the laurels, the black-stained grass plot, the progress of the dog Balthazar, all the suffering of the fifteen years during which he had been balked of legitimate enjoyment mingled its gall with the sweetness of the approaching moment. Young Jolyon came at last, pleased with his work, and fresh from long hours in the open air. On hearing that his father was in the drawing-room, he inquired hurriedly whether Mrs. Forsythe was at home, and being informed that she was not, heaved a sigh of relief. Then putting his painting materials carefully in the little coat-closet out of sight, he went in. With characteristic decision, old Jolyon came at once to the point. "'I've been altering my arrangements, Joe,' he said. 
You can cut your coat a bit longer in the future. I'm settling a thousand a year on you at once. June will have fifty thousand at my death, and you the rest. That dog of yours is spoiling the garden. I shouldn't keep a dog if I were you. The dog Balthazar, seated in the center of the lawn, was examining his tail. Young Jolyon looked at the animal, but saw him dimly, for his eyes were misty. "'Yours won't come short of a hundred thousand, my boy,' said old Jolyon. "'I thought you'd better know. I haven't much longer to live at my age. I shan't allude to it again. How's your wife? And give her my love.' Young Jolyon put his hand on his father's shoulder, and as neither spoke the episode closed. Having seen his father into a hansom, young Jolyon came back to the drawing-room and stood, where old Jolyon had stood, looking down on the little garden. He tried to realize all that this meant to him, and foresight that he was, vistas of property were opened out in his brain. The years of half-rations through which he had passed had not sapped his natural instincts. In extremely practical form, he thought of travel, of his wife's costume, the children's education, a pony for Jolly, a thousand things. But in the midst of all, he thought to a Bassini and his mistress, and the broken song of the thrush, joy, tragedy, which, which. The old past, the poignant, suffering, passionate, wonderful past that no money could buy, that nothing could restore in all its burning sweetness, had come back before him. When his wife came in, he went straight up to her and took her in his arms, and for a long time he stood without speaking, his eyes closed pressing her to him while she looked at him with a wondering, adoring, doubting look in her eyes. End of Part 3, Chapter 3 Recording by Leanne Howlett